are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. If you're able to stand with me, I'm going to read our scripture today, and if the kids would stay with us through the reading of scripture, and then during the video, they can go out and meet with their teachers through fourth grade and go on downstairs. Our passage today is Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 32. It's on page 1091 in the Black Bible in front of you. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a district named, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood behind him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to recap for us the Jesus movement in the world where we're up to. We have just passed the point where Saul, so this is the man who would later be you know, more recognized by his Greco-Roman name, Paul. Uh, Saul has come to the blinding realization that Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one, is in actuality the Messiah, the anointed one, the people, the, the person that the people of Israel have been waiting for. And that realization, of course, has changed everything about the way he reads the Hebrew Scriptures and even understands his own calling in the world. Well, even though it only took us a couple weeks to cover it, it's been three years since Paul's conversion, and after coming to Jerusalem to connect with the leaders of the Jesus movement, his, maybe his zealous immaturity got the better of him again, and they said, hey, great to meet you. Go home to Tarsus for a while. Um, cool your jets while we kind of establish some peace and quiet around here. And so we've just watched Saul disappear for a decade uh, we'll pick up with him again in a couple of chapters. Uh, but meanwhile, the story continues, and now we're following Peter, picking up at the beginning of a decisive turn in the whole big story of the church. We start this journey following Peter into Gentile territory. And before we jump right into this story, I was reminded of a year or two ago, I was talking with a friend of mine, another pastor. It was one of those typical conversations among pastors, like, hey, what you working on? How's it going? What's working? What's not working? You know, that sort of thing. Um, basically what any two professionals would do when they like, meet up at a conference or something like that, right? Like, what's working? What's not working? That sort of thing. 
But we were also, we got to talking about some of the hard things, hard parts about being a pastor. And so I wasn't completely surprised when he opened up a little bit. We've known each other for a long time. And he opened up and said uh, the quiet part that you're not supposed to say out loud. He said it out loud. Admitted to one of those things that pastors are never supposed to admit that they struggle with. He said, I know God loves everyone. I just don't know if he loves me. It's like, I know God loves everyone. I just don't know if he loves me. I mean, why would he? He said, I've never done anything big. I've never done anything perfectly. I've never done any single thing that would make God kind of stand up and take notice. It's like, I know God loves everyone but how do I know if he loves me? Have you ever had a thought like that? Wondered, am I significant enough? Have I done something significant enough that God sees and knows and loves me? I mean, the thoughts crossed my mind, so I assume it's across some of your minds as well. Because you know, as well as I do, that we live in such a performance-driven culture that we can't help but intimately connect our performance, our production, our output with our own personal value, right? Our worth. I mean, our language didn't even have the word manpower until after we had the word horsepower. First, we measured the output of animals, and then we thought, I can apply that to a human being. Let's measure the worth of a human being by what they can produce, not by who they are. And we, we just swim in this, in this soup. Students who get perfect grades are worth more than students who don't, right? Employees who can get more done in less time are worth more than employees who can't. Moms who raise more, better kids are worth more than moms who don't. And dads who can provide bigger and better houses for their families are worth more than dads who can't. And bosses who have happier employees are worth more than bosses who don't. And people who live out their own understanding of who they are in the world are worth more than people who don't. And pastors who build bigger churches and pack bigger auditoriums are worth more than pastors who don't. We have to do more things. We have to do better things. We have to do them darn near perfectly if we want God to notice us, to see us, to love us, right? Okay, I feel gross even just saying all those things out loud because I know it's not true, and you know it's not true, and yet we live like that's the way the world works because it kind of is. And we're in this big part of this story of the church where like big important things are happening in the history of the church. The greatest theologian that the church has ever seen, Saul, has just come to faith in Jesus as Messiah. The first and greatest leader that the church will ever have, Peter, has shepherded the growing Jesus movement through its initial growing pains into its first few rounds of oppression and persecution, and then now into a a time of peace and steady, manageable growth. We'd be forgiven if we started thinking that this history of the early church that we're reading, the book of Acts that Luke has written for us, we'd be forgiven for thinking that it's, it's really just about the big people 
who did big things for God. Because it's the big people who get written about, right? Except today's passage is about two otherwise average people in two otherwise obscure towns, people away from the centers of power, away from the hotbeds of activity, people no one would ever know about or talk about if Jesus hadn't seen them through Peter. I mean, if you've ever wondered, am I too small? Am I too insignificant to be noticed by Jesus? Have I done too much or have I done not enough for God to love me? Well, then these two stories are for, for us. Because as we walk through these two, uh, they're parallel miracles. They're kind of told in sort of the same way. As we walk through both of these, it's going to become clear. Even in the midst of epic changes in the whole big picture of how God is working in the world, the risen and exalted Messiah, Jesus, is still directing his resurrection power to people who never have and never will do anything big. People who never have and never will live somewhere prominent, people who never have and never will make a splash in the world that will ripple throughout history. In other words, people like us, people like me, people like you all. So let's jump into their stories. Luke gives us the setting for these two stories right away, verse 32, verse 36. He starts us in one place and kind of moves us along. But picking it up in verse 32 there, Luke tells us, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda or Lydda. Lydda was about a day's journey kind of west-northwest of Jerusalem. Today it's a southeastern suburb of Tel Aviv. In Peter's time, it was a small town Decent-sized population, about 100 years before this, they'd all been sold off into slavery, so it's kind of rebuilding. Decent population, it was in that area between Judea and Samaria that was not really claimed by either in a region that's called the Sharon or the Sharon, that kind of good, flat farmland. And Luke tells us that Peter came down to Lydda, and he says came down because he's not an American. He doesn't think north is up. He thinks Jerusalem is up. And since he was leaving Jerusalem, he was going down, whichever direction he was uh, heading on the compass. He was going kind of west, northwesterly towards uh, Lydda. And Peter is on a, I guess we could call it a pastoral care trip. Uh, Luke tells us he's going here and there among them all. And that's important to note because, I mean, it shows us that even still at this early stage, the churches are connected to one another. Now, again, the church in Lydda and the church that we'll hear about in a few minutes in Joppa, um, we have no record or history of how these churches were started. Luke leaves out way more than he includes. So if we were forced to guess, we'd say uh, Philip. We read about him in chapter 8. There was a period where he preached along this kind of 60-mile-long coastal route from Azotus, straight west of Jerusalem, all the way up through Joppa and into Caesarea. Uh, Lydda is about 10 miles off of that route, so... Sure, it was Philip's preaching, maybe, that, that, that planted these churches. But the point of kind of Peter going here and there is, is to emphasize the churches are connected, they're organized, uh, kind of under the authority of the, the mother church in Jerusalem. 
Now, it's not so much that the churches are accountable to the Jerusalem church as it is that the Jerusalem church feels, hey, we're responsible for all of these churches. We're responsible for the quality of the teaching, the quality of the leadership, responsible for the care of the people in these churches. In other words, the, the early church knew nothing of independent churches that you know, each kind of governed their own affairs and was disconnected from every other church. They're all vitally connected, weaving their fates together. When one church rejoices, the other churches rejoice. When one church suffers, other churches step in to help. We see that coming up in some of the later chapters of Acts. So anyway, Peter is on this pastoral care trip. He's going here, he's going there among them all. And as part of that trip, he ends up in Lydda, visiting the saints, the followers of Jesus who live there. Now, Luke doesn't give us any more details about how Peter ends up running into this man named Aeneas, other than that Peter found him. Now, considering he was probably laying at home, I'm assuming Peter was invited into someone's house, like, hey, Peter, I want you to meet this guy. I think you'd be a great blessing to him, something like that. But Peter finds him, finds him paralyzed, and he's been confined to his bed eight years whether there was a stroke or something in his past that caused a paralysis that basically kept him uh, homebound and helpless. And don't picture, by the way, don't picture in your mind a real comfortable setup either. The the words used here to describe the situation kind of picture the bed more like a a temporary cot. Uh, It's the kind of thing that I wouldn't even take camping because it's not soft enough and there's no inflate nozzle on it, you know, to make it comfortable. It's basically a a blanket rolled out on the floor to sleep on and then rolled up at night and stowed away so you can use the rest of the house uh, during the day. For eight years, he's been confined to a blanket on the floor. He's been relying on his family, his friends, uh, to care for him, to prevent bed sores, to feed him, to wash him, help him go to the bathroom. He's the, he's the definition of insignificant. A guy with literally nothing to offer except for need, needing help. A guy who's unable to care for himself. And, and somewhere in the recent past, he's come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. But just because he sees Jesus as the Messiah... doesn't mean that Jesus sees him. Or at least you can understand why he might think so. Does Jesus pay attention to people like Aeneas? People who can't do a blessed thing for him? Well, again, Luke doesn't tell us much, doesn't tell us what causes paralysis. He just tells us that Peter finds him, sees him. Peter takes the initiative. Aeneas doesn't ask for healing. Peter's acting a lot like Jesus did in some of the stories in Luke's gospel that he tells about Jesus. He just takes the initiative without a request and declares with the authority of the name of Jesus. He says, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And that's it. He gets up, rolls up his bed, resumes a normal life. We never hear from him again. 
There's nothing special about Aeneas. Nothing special about the day that Peter showed up. He happened to be on his pastoral rounds. He's visiting the churches. He's checking in on the leaders. He's making sure people are being cared for. And he comes across Aeneas and somehow knows that here's a man that Jesus wants to heal. And he says, Jesus wants to heal you. Get up. Take care of your bed. See, in the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as an insignificant person. There is no such thing as an insignificant person in the kingdom of God. Even somebody like Aeneas who can't make his own bed, feed himself and take care of himself, Jesus sees. But that's not the end of the story. Because Peter's in Lydda. Lydda, that's close enough to Joppa that disciples in Joppa, 10 miles further west-northwest, they know Peter's there. They can appeal to him for help. Take a look at verse 36. In verse 36, we're introduced to a follower of Jesus named Tabitha. Tabitha is an Aramaic name meaning gazelle, um, which doesn't sound like a great girl's name, but it's sort of a, um, it's an Aramaic euphemism for beloved. It's a way of calling somebody beloved. It's like one of my wife's pet names for me is cow. And she says it's short for cowboy. I think she just loves cows. Um, she's nothing better. She loves going back home. Her dad raises cattle and, and she just loves it. So I guess it's cow or, or Tabitha in Aramaic. Uh, but Luke also, you know, translates it here to us into Greek. Dorcas is the Greek word for gazelle. Also, children, a great insult. If you're trying to insult your sibling, oh, they're not here, are they? They're in catechism. All right, well, this is just for you parents then. If your kids are ever like, you're such a Dorcas, it doesn't mean that they're saying, hey, you're a beautiful, sensitive person who cares for uh, people in need. That's the way my wife's family used it when they were growing up. It's not what it actually means. That would have been a lot funnier if the kids were here and could have used that. Now you just have ammunition against them. Anyway, um, just pretend none of that happened. So back to Tabitha. She's got a reputation, a good reputation, a role in the church community. Luke describes her as one who is full of good works and acts of charity. Later in the story, we're going to meet some of the widows who rely on her charity to meet their own needs. They even they're showing off some of the, the clothing that she's made for them with her own hands. Throughout this story, she's pictured here as a, as a woman of means, of some amount of significance, She's got the time and the freedom to devote to doing good works for people in, in need. Also, committed follower of Jesus, seems to be a person of some status and influence within the Christian community in Joppa. So anyway, around the time that Peter's in Lydda on his pastoral tour, Tabitha's in Joppa, uh, again, we don't know what happens to her other than falling ill, she dies. That's all we're told. She gets sick, she passes away, uh, her body is washed and then laid out in an upper room. Normally, when someone passes away, their body is prepared and then displayed in their own home or in their, you know, their own residence. So the fact that there's an upper room here that we'll find out later is large enough for a crowd to gather uh, implies, again, she's a person of some means. Possibly even the church was meeting in her home. Yeah, most scholars who read it agree. Like the, the loss of this person... Tabitha strikes a, 
probably quite a blow to the Christian community here in Joppa. Well, anyway, in verse 38, Luke tells us that since Joppa was near Lydda, just 10 miles away, and because the churches in Joppa had heard that Peter was coming and was probably headed in their direction next, uh, two men make the quick trip to Lydda, kind of in a hurry to appeal to him, to urge him, hey, come with us. I don't know what they're expecting Peter to do, but they heard Peter was close by and they wanted help. Now, the way that they ask him for help, kind of the way the Greek words are all constructed, it sort of implies that there was a chance that he wouldn't come help. And scholars have debated why. You know, some, some think it's because, well, Joppa isn't a predominantly Jewish town. Uh, Lida is. Lida is almost 100% Jewish, but Joppa is almost the exact opposite. It's pretty much Greek through and through. So even though there are Jewish followers of Jesus in Joppa, Uh, The community, the Christian community there too, is is steeped in the Greco-Roman world. So maybe they're trying to urge him, like, I don't know if you want to come to one of these sort of unclean areas, or maybe it's just like, we need you to come now, because if you don't, like, she'll be buried by the time we get back, and then I don't know what's left to do after that, right? Just go through the pockets and look for change. Really, no one? Okay, thank you. Man. I am striking out today. But Peter goes with them. All right, they come and say, hey, we need your help. He goes with them immediately. He's ushered into this upper room where Tabitha's body is laid out. And again, it's a large enough room, quite a few followers of Jesus that are there, including some of the widows that she's been caring for. And we kind of get the sense that they're, they're showing Peter, they're like, this, this woman who has died, like she made me this. She cared for us. But Peter, he'd seen Jesus do the same thing, so he does it himself. Peter puts everyone outside, unlike kind of today's faith healers. He doesn't say, hey, everybody gather around, watch while I roll up my sleeves. Instead, he puts everybody outside, and then he kneels down, he prays, and then just turns to the body and says, Tabitha, it's time to get up. And she opens her eyes, sees Peter, a stranger in her bedroom, sits up, and then Peter helps her up and opens the doors and presents her alive to all those who had been mourning her passing. See, the thing about this story that's so great is that that Tabitha is at the center of it, right? She's the person that Jesus brings back to life, but the story isn't about Tabitha, it's about the widows. Who benefits from Tabitha's resurrection? I mean, we can certainly make a case that for Tabitha, it's better to be alive than dead. Except she's at rest with Jesus waiting for the resurrection at the end of all things. So who benefits from Tabitha coming back to life? She's at the center of the story, but the story is actually about the widows, it's about the insignificant people who are relying on someone else to care for them. Like Aeneas, we don't know how recently they came to faith in Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, the Lord of the whole world. We just know that they're followers of the Jewish Messiah. They're living in a thoroughly Greco-Roman town. They're huddled together in this community of other followers of Jesus. They're being cared for 
by people who aren't even related to them, except their family, like in the fullest sense of that word, because of their shared bond in Jesus. Does this Messiah, does Jesus, okay, sure, he's working in Israel, but does he care? Does he see people as insignificant as widows who can't provide for themselves or take care of anyone else and have to rely on the charity of others? The answer is absolutely, because there's no such thing as an insignificant person in the kingdom of God. No one is insignificant in the kingdom of God. And this is important to get across because there is a big story going on in this section of Acts that these little stories are part of. Peter is moving from Jerusalem, a thoroughly Jewish city, to Lydda, a city that's, you know, a town that's mostly Jewish, uh, to Joppa, a town that's mostly Greek. And next week, we're going to see him in Caesarea, a thoroughly Greek city. We are in the midst of a fundamental shift in the church's understanding of how God is working in the world. And most of the commentaries I read about this section all said the same thing about these two miracle stories. They're like, Luke needed filler. Because he needed to get his main character, Peter, up towards Caesarea. And he can't get him to Caesarea until he gets him to Joppa. And he can't get him to Joppa until he gets him to Lydia or Lydda or however you say it. And, and so he had the, a couple of miracle stories at his fingertips. And he's like, well, let's just, you know, Peter did this and it got him here. And now we can get to the big stuff that matters. Cornelius coming next week. I think that completely misses the point. Because the main character of the book of Acts isn't Peter or Paul. Who's the main character of the book of Acts? It's Jesus working through the Holy Spirit in the church, proclaiming the kingdom of God. It's Jesus' ongoing work in the world through his church, which is not confined to the big cities and the big names, and the big splashy events. Of course, history has to be told with the big movements, but history is made up, and every big story is made up of a thousand little stories, and here we get just two of them. Two people, Aeneas and Tabitha, and the widows that relied on her. These are people who would otherwise be unknown and forgotten. And yet, uniquely, in, in Luke's you know, story of the early church, there are three miraculous healings where the individual healed or resurrected is named. One of them is a guy who fell out of a window while Paul was preaching. And the other two are here. These two insignificant, unknown, obscure, backwater followers of Jesus are given like names, we get to know who they are. And they're included here, I think, as one author put it. They're included here because in the midst of episodes that deal with the seismic changes in the grand scheme of salvation history, Luke is reminding his readers that the exalted Jesus is still directing his resurrection power to average individuals in obscure places. If that doesn't describe us, I don't know what does. That author goes on to say, you know, Jesus attends to the needs of a man who doesn't own a bed and to widows who depend on the kindness of a deceased garment maker. Why? 
Why even include those stories here? Man, scrolls cost money. Why tell us these stories? Why? Because in the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as an insignificant person. My wife and I lived in Texas for four years while I was working on my seminary degree. And if Texas is known for anything, it's known that you don't mess with Texas, right? She bought me a shirt when we moved down there that said, Texas messed with me first. I never met a Texan who thought that was funny. (laughs) But if Texas is known for anything, it's known for being big, right? Everything's bigger in Texas, which means everything is better in Texas. We were a part of a church while we were there, a church that is a lot like faith, about 500 people, two services, one leans a little more traditional, one leans a little more contemporary. Uh, All the rest was so much the same. And our church was looked down on because we weren't big enough. If you lived in Dallas and you led a church, if it was smaller than a thousand people, you were doing something wrong. Everybody just assumed, like, what's wrong with that pastor if he can only get 500 people to show up? Even in seminary, guess what kind of speakers they brought in for us for chapel? Yeah, big. Big church, leaders of national ministries, authors with millions in book sales. We never once heard from a pastor who had shepherded the same hundred people for 30 years. Why? Because we all know leaders like that, they're just not significant enough. At least not significant enough to inspire all of us wannabe pastors to go do something big for Jesus. I wish someone had taught me back then or they brought in a speaker who, you know, had a church of 35 uh, to just get up and say, you know, there's no such thing as an insignificant person in the kingdom of God. It didn't mean much when the senior pastor of a church of 10,000 told us that. Because, like, I, I don't know, significance or importance or value or whatever word you want to use, it's, it's not measured. Significance is not measured by what I can do for God or what I can lead for God or what you can do for God. In fact, significance, there's, there's not even a way to measure it in the kingdom of God. Because there's no such thing as an insignificant person in the kingdom of God. Even if you're a poor, paralyzed man who can't make your own bed or a destitute widow relying on the charity of others. Even if on the other end of it, you're Peter or Paul or Philip or Barnabas, you're a mover, a shaker, a leader, you're taking the gospel places it's never been before. There's no such thing as an insignificant person in the kingdom of God because it's not measured by what you or I can do. Our significance is measured by what God is willing to do for us. See, you know, you know as well as I do, in the kingdoms of this world, we, we run ourselves ragged trying to get to the next level, climb the next rung, achieve the next milestone, make the next dream, whatever. We got to make ourselves indispensable, unforgettable, irreplaceable. And our worth is measured, our worth is determined by how much someone else will sacrifice, how much they will give up in order to acquire what I have to offer. 
you got rare and valuable skills, people will pay a lot of money for that. They'll sacrifice of their own money in order to acquire what you have. If you have, I don't know, a platform and a name, people are willing to give you time, give you money to use that in order to get what they're looking for. You've got connections. People will sacrifice in order to get close to you, to get through you to whoever they're actually trying to get to. What we're worth is defined by what other people are willing to sacrifice to get what we have. Which is so insidious because it's half true. It's half true because what we're worth is defined by what God was willing to sacrifice in order to have us. Even if we have nothing, he's still willing to sacrifice everything for each of us, because there's no such thing as insignificant people in the kingdom of God. You know, Peter writes in one of his later letters, he's talking to the churches, he says, you've been chosen, you're a people for God's own possession. Like You have been grabbed by God so that you can proclaim how great is the God who has called you out of darkness into light. Because it was his great mercy that caused each of us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the Messiah. He says, look, God didn't ransom you. He didn't pay for you with, you know, perishable stuff that'll fade away like gold and silver. He bought you with the precious blood of the Messiah. Your significance and my significance is not measured by what other people in this room or at our jobs or in our families are willing to give up or sacrifice in order to you know, have a little bit of what we have. Our significance is measured by how much God is willing to sacrifice in order to have us with him. Which means there's no such thing as an insignificant person in the kingdom of God. You could be the church's greatest theologian read and revered for centuries or the poorest beggar, unable to care for anyone, including yourself. You, you could be the best preacher or the worst disciple, the best missionary or the worst servant, and ultimately it doesn't matter how great you are in the eyes of the world, how noticed you are or how unnoticed or ignored you are. In the kingdom of God, there's no such thing as an insignificant person because every single person Jesus sees and knows and gave up everything to win. That's what makes you, that's what makes me worth anything. It's how much God gave up for us. Not what we can do for him, but what he's done for us. So pray with me. Father, we admit that in this world, our greatest desire is also our deepest uh, fear to be fully and completely known and seen for what we actually are and what we really can contribute and what we have to offer because we fear that if we're, if we're known, that we'll be known for not having anything of worth. And yet you know us completely and still chose to give up everything for us. So we pray, Father, 
knowing that we will never do anything big for you. We will never do anything great. That our names won't ripple through history. Yet we are loved and cherished by you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.